Nuclear Ukraine. While Russia and the United States face off at the Ukrainian border over what looks like an impending invasion by Russia, but then again with Russia and the U.S., one never knows exactly what's going on behind the scenes, one might be tempted to think, well, at least Ukraine doesn't have nuclear weapons. But wait. When one considers that there are 15 nuclear power reactors in Ukraine, including six at a facility only 120 miles away from where Russia is amassing its forces, that might lead you to think, oops. And then, when a genuine expert on nuclear matters tells you, The multiplication of nuclear power plants has been given little public consideration in terms of their vulnerability in times of war. And that's what we have, a country crowded with nuclear power plants. If there's war, there's going to be a big war in the Ukraine, probably the biggest war in Europe since World War II. And those 15 nuclear power plants in Ukraine are going to be one way or the other involved in the conflict. The threat is real. Even a desultory Russian incursion into Eastern Ukraine is likely to expose reactors and the uncertainty of a ground combat environment. The world has little experience with reactors in a war zone. Well, when Carl Grossman raises a big red flag about nuclear reactors on the ground in a possible war zone in Ukraine, And then Bruce Gagnon fills us in on the connection between war in Ukraine and climate change. You can see that we're a lot closer than ever to that dangerous seat that we all share. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat, it's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I'm the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, a truly different perspective on the growing tensions in Ukraine, where Russia has been amassing troops on their border, the United States and NATO have been rattling sabers back at them, and there are 15 operating nuclear reactors on the ground, plus the highly radioactive remains of Chernobyl. Will we have a war and live thereafter by the law of unintended nuclear consequences? If so, how bad might those be? To find out We have two experts, award-winning environmental journalist Carl Grossman and Bruce Gagnon, who is coordinator of the Global Network Against Weapons and Nuclear Power in Space. These two men will help us decipher the nature of the dangers as well as background issues that led up to this situation and the surprising role that climate change plays as the ultimate motivation behind this military buildup. 
We will also have nuclear news from around the world, numbnuts of the week for outstanding nuclear boneheadedness, and more honest nuclear information than showed up on Wordle even before the New York Times bought it. All of it coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, February 1st, 2022, and here is this week's nuclear news from a different perspective. In New Mexico, Triad National Security, the nuclear weapons contractor at Los Alamos National Laboratory, wants the Department of Energy to accept the risk of bringing large shipments of plutonium-238 in uncertified containers for repackaging at the plutonium facility. Despite the fact that this would exceed the established quantity limits for the plutonium facility and the glove boxes that would be used in packaging operations. It would also increase the potential risk to the public from a radiological release from an earthquake, fire, either or both. And the radiation exposure would be 3 to 15 times the DOE's guidance limit of 25 REMS. Dan Hirsch, a retired director of environment and nuclear policy programs at the University of California, Santa Cruz, said, just 25 REMS is 12,500 x-rays and a very, very high cancer risk. That the request is so far over it is astonishing. In Massachusetts, we will link to an article by Christine Legere in the Provincetown Independent on exactly why Cape Cod Bay is not a good place for Holtec, which is decommissioning the Pilgrim Nuclear Power Station, to dump one million gallons of radioactive waste. The former heads of nuclear power regulation in the U.S., Germany, and France, along with former secretary to the U.K.'s Government Radiation Protection Committee, have issued a joint statement that says, in part, nuclear is just not part of any feasible strategy that could counter climate change. Dr. Gregory Yatsko, former chair of the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission, Dr. Paul Dorfman from the U.K., Dr. Bernard Laponche, former director general of the French Agency for Energy Management, and Professor Wolfgang Renneberg, former head of the Reactor Safety, Radiation Protection, and Nuclear Waste Division of the Federal Environmental Ministry in Germany, said, quote, The central message repeated again and again is that a new generation of nuclear will be clean, safe, smart, and cheap, is fiction. The reality is nuclear is neither clean, safe, or smart, but a very complex technology with the potential to cause significant harm. Nuclear isn't cheap, but extremely costly. Perhaps most importantly, nuclear is just not part of any feasible strategy that could counter climate change. We'll link to that source material as well. In Japan... As the European Commission has decided to include nuclear power in the European Green Taxonomy, meaning the classification that allows for funding as part of clean renewable energy to fight climate change, put all of that in quotes, five former prime ministers of Japan have taken a public stand against that inclusion. Naoto Kan, who was prime minister when Fukushima happened, and Junichiro Koizumi, the longest-serving prime minister in Japan's history, cited the exorbitant cost to Japan after Fukushima and spoke in favor of wind power and solar power. Many of the plans that TEPCO, Tokyo Electric Power Company, has to release the still radiologically contaminated water stored at Fukushima Daiichi into the Pacific Ocean starting in spring of 2023 has received more setbacks. 
Opposition to the plan remains fierce among local residents, the fishing industry, and overseas governments. Pits are being dug that will temporarily hold radioactive water right before the release, but other preparatory work has already been stalled, including creation of an undersea tunnel through which the through which this radioactive water is intended to be released into the Pacific about one kilometer from the plant. Now comes word that Fukushima radiation made Japanese fir trees go haywire after that nuclear disaster, which began on March 11 of 2011. In a study published on January 15 in the journal Plants, scientists described changes to the structure of plants and trees in areas close to where the triple meltdown occurred. The number of strange mutations corresponded with the amount of radiation the trees were hit with, and the authors noted that the abnormalities they uncovered were like those found on Scott's pine trees in the Chernobyl exclusion zone. This also brings to mind Mary Osborne's collected of mutated plants around Three Mile Island after that nuclear accident, which are currently in the Smithsonian Institution. And now... Nuclear hot seed, nuclear hot seed, nuclear hot seed, none that's out of week. A number of fungi species are known to inhabit the extremely radioactive environment that emerged out of the Chernobyl nuclear accident in 1986. Scientists have documented around 200 species living in the ruins of the former nuclear power plant. And now we learn that a few actually eat the radiation itself. So what conclusion did these scientists come to about the possible use of such radiation-eating fungi? Why? Use them as a source of food for astronauts during long space flights or when we colonize other planets. Excuse me, has anybody thought to maybe unleash these on radioactive zones so that they can start eating up radiation here on Earth and neutralizing it? Could it be that Mother Nature has come up with a solution to the nuclear waste problem, only we are too stupid, short-sighted, or who knows what, to see that it's there? How about we get a lot of these fungi and, I don't know, dust them over the Santa Susana Field Lab in Southern California, or the Westlake Landfill in North St. Louis, or the Hanford site in Washington State, or any one of the other radioactive zones that we have around this country, heck, around the world. Let's try it out, guys. You know, a practical, low-cost, non-toxic means of neutralizing nuclear waste? Could we just put some brain power behind it? Well, I guess not from these people, and that's why whoever you scientists are who are saying, ooh, let's send all of this radiation-eating fungi into outer space, you are short-sighted, and you're this week's Nuclear Hot Seed, none that's out of week. We'll have this week's featured interview in just a moment, but first, nuclear threats and radiation disasters. There are too many to count. But as a start, the Trinity test in New Mexico, Hiroshima, Nagasaki, Chernobyl, Fukushima, Three Mile Island, Church Rock uranium mining spill in New Mexico, overflowing radioactive spent fuel pools at every nuclear energy reactor on the planet, plutonium-contaminated radioactive waste dumps, and, as you'll soon hear, 15 Ukrainian nuclear reactors in what may soon be a war zone. Whee! And there's always more. Every week, 
There are new stories of how nuclear perpetuates itself despite the known risks and historic accidents, as well as lesser told tales of how brave activists around the world are fighting back and how any one of us can take action to stop the nuclear madness. And that's why Nuclear Hot Seat is here, to help you understand what's going on in the nuclear world and what you can do about it. We get into nuclear stories with facts, continuity, and context, as well as a healthy dose of sarcasm, and provide a much deeper and nuanced exploration of the issues than you would ever expect to find on mainstream media. We bring you fresh information, an unrelenting perspective, and even, when possible, humor, all with an eye to giving you the power to fight back. Want to help us keep doing our thing? then the time is right now to support us. Just go to NuclearHotSeat.com and click on the big red donate button to help us with a donation of any size. You can also set up a monthly donation of as little as $5. That's actually the juice that keeps us going. So if you value Nuclear Hot Seat and want to help us continue to keep you informed, please do what you can now and know that however much you can help, You have my gratitude that you listen and that you care. Now here's this week's featured interview. It's bad enough to know that Russian troops are massing on the border of Ukraine. The U.S. and NATO are pushing back. And the U.S. and Russia, two nuclear-armed states, are ramping up both the rhetoric and the war footing. What is going on? And how much of a nuclear threat are we as a planet facing? That's what I set out to discover for this week's show and came out of it with more complex, nuanced, and unexpected information than I ever could have anticipated. That's what happens when you ask genuine experts what they see happening and then allow them to have their say. I spoke with Carl Grossman. He is an award-winning environmental investigative reporter, author of six books, and a journalism professor at the State University of New York College at Old Westbury. Carl also hosts the syndicated television program Enviro Close-Up with Carl Grossman and has been covering nuclear issues for more than 50 years. Bruce Gagnon is co-founder and coordinator of the Global Network Against Weapons and Nuclear Power in Space. He follows international issues, the threat of war, and the dangers posed by nuclear anything in space. Together, these two men have worked tirelessly to tease out and expose the truths of nuclear dangers, then share them with anyone willing to listen. That's why they're here, and that's why they're talking to you. At the start of each nuclear hot seat, I always state that we provide nuclear news from a different perspective. And that is what we truly have here, a different perspective on Ukraine, what has led up to it, what is ultimately behind it, and hint, can you spell climate change? I spoke with Carl Grossman and Bruce Gagnon on Saturday, January 29, 2022. Carl Grossman and Bruce Gagnon, welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat. Great to be with you. A pleasure to be with you, Libby, and to be with Bruce. Let's do a little bit of background first on the nuclear aspect of Ukraine. How extensive is their use of nuclear reactors to get their energy? There are 15 nuclear power plants in Ukraine, 
Indeed, I'm looking here at an article, Aerospace and Defense, a Ukraine invasion could go nuclear. 50 reactors would be in war zone. That's the headline. Here, here's a piece from the New York Times just a week ago. Talks about the Ukraine being one of the most radioactive places on Earth. Indeed, the Ukraine is where the, the Chernobyl nuclear plant was. Now it's in the middle of an exclusion zone, highly radioactive area. And here the New York Times in, in its first paragraph notes that if there is an invasion by Russia into Ukraine, the shortest path lies going through the Chernobyl exclusion zone. So we're talking about, uh, well, as aerospace and defense says, a war that could because of all these nuclear power plants. If there's an exchange of fire and nuclear power plants are hit, you're talking about huge destruction, which could impact not only the Ukraine, but like Chernobyl did, all of Europe and beyond. Presumably because these reactors were all built during the Russian era of being dominant over the Ukraine. These are Russian design built and certainly the training behind it has to come from Russia. To what extent do we know that they are still involved in the operation of these reactors? And could they just at minimum step away from any of their support should anything go wrong with them? Frankly, I wouldn't downgrade the Soviet design reactors in, in the Ukraine. Vladimir Chernosenko, who I interviewed years ago, he was in charge of the cleanup at the uh, Chernobyl nuclear plant site. And he died of, of, of cancer as a result of, of being there. I mean, that area is hot, still hot with radioactivity. And what Dr. Chernosenko told me is that though the West would like to say the Soviet reactors are of poor design and so forth, he was to the West. He's been to, or he was to, Western reactors. They're all about the same. So they all are very susceptible for catastrophic accidents. And whether it's the, well, the GE reactors in Fukushima or the Soviet design reactors in, in the Ukraine, nuclear power is dirty, dangerous, also expensive, but enormously, enormously dangerous because of the high likelihood of accidents, and not small ones either, catastrophic accidents. Russia has been building up its troops at the Ukrainian border, and there seems to be every indication that they intend to invade the country. We just got news this morning that blood supplies have been moved to the front in Russia. Is there a known reason for this buildup? Can we speculate as to what Russia's intention is? Bruce, why don't you take this one, if you would, please? Actually, I don't agree with your premise there. I don't think Russia has the slightest interest in invading Ukraine. We hear that in Western media, but we should remember 2003, George W. Bush's shock and awe of Iraq, where the corporate media lied to us light us into a war. NPR, New York Times, CNN, MSNBC, Washington Post, all the way down the line. And they're doing the same thing again. We've got to be a little more 
circumspect about what we hear in the corporate dominated media. Russia has said this, that since the 2014 Obama administration orchestrated coup d'etat in Ukraine, where they overthrew an elected president. This was directed by Joe Biden, then Vice President, Hillary Clinton, Secretary of State, and Victoria Nuland, Assistant Secretary of State. They installed a right-wing president, and the first thing they did was pass a law saying that the speaking of Russian in Ukraine would be illegal. Well, half the country speaks Russian. And on the eastern side of Ukraine, what they call the Donbass region, the cities of Lugansk and Donetsk, right on the Russian border, they began holding peaceful marches and collecting referendum signatures, saying, we want a federated Ukraine. These people are now called Russian separatists. I call them self-defense forces, because as they were doing this, they were attacked by Nazis, Nazis from Western Ukraine, who since the days of Hitler's invasion, when Hitler swept through Ukraine, as he came into Western Ukraine, there's a long tradition of Nazi worship there. A guy by the name of Stefan Bandera, who's now been proclaimed by this new government as a national hero, he organized a group of fascist followers, and they helped the Nazis kill tens of thousands of Jews, Poles, and ethnic Russians. And so today, these Nazis are being trained and outfitted and directed by the United States, the United Kingdom, and NATO. And as soon as these peaceful marches and signature campaigns began in eastern Ukraine on the Russian border by ethnic Russians, but Ukrainian citizens. These Nazis were sent there to attack them. And they've been doing it ever since 2014. More than 10,000 people have died. They've bombed and shelled hospitals, schools, churches, daycare centers, train stations, rail stations, apartment blocks, rural homes of poor people. These are mostly coal miners in the region. And as they began attacking the people in the Donbass, the coal miners came out of the mines and grabbed whatever they could to defend their families. Again, this is why I call them self-defense forces, to defend their families against these attacks by these Nazis. And slowly, uh, they began to accumulate some of the weapons from some of these Nazis as they chased them away or whatever. And then Russia also began to arm them. Russia never invaded but they did uh, support these self-defense forces. Well, today they have what's called a line of contact between the Donbass, again, the cities of Lugansk and Donetsk, and just on the other side, literally a few hundred yards away, are 150,000 Ukrainian soldiers who are now being armed in a steroidal campaign by the US and NATO. And so the reason why Russia has moved its forces near the border of Ukraine is not because they want to attack it. It's because if there's a full-scale attack, something that Ukraine has been threatening for years of this Donbass region, then Russia says we will defend them. That's what's really going on. 
and few people know about it because it's never reported, as I said before, in the corporate media. Again, Russia has been saying this, U.S. created a failed state when it did the coup d'etat in 2014. IMF loans came in, and in order to get those loans, they had to sell off everything in the country, including their topsoil. Remember, Ukraine was the breadbasket of Europe, and Monsanto has now bought the topsoil of Ukraine. So it's a failed state. Russia said, why do we want to occupy and try to take on the responsibility of this huge country? We already have a big country. Uh, it makes no sense. Let the U.S. and NATO deal with Ukraine. Let them fix Ukraine because they've ruined it. That's Russia's official position. Thanks for that, Bruce, because that's certainly a perspective that I have not come across. Now, the buildup of Russian troops is only 120 miles from the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, which consists of six reactors. If there is a conflict that goes hot between the United States, NATO, Ukraine, whoever the forces are on one side and Russia on the other, if that's not too simplistic, what is the possible impact it could have on Zaporizhia? Ambassador to Japan, Sergei Korsunsky, said, if war, and this is just said a few days ago, if war is going to happen, it'll be the first ever in the history of mankind war against a country which has on its territory 15 nuclear reactors. Again, it's part of the folly, frankly, of nuclear power, ignoring the impacts of war. Indeed, Gordon Edwards, who was a noted nuclear scientist, he was on a, it was an impressive presentation he gave just a few days ago, all about nuclear power. And he's a Canadian, Dr. Edwards. And one of the points he made was that if nuclear power had been developed before World War II, and you consider all the bombing done in World War II, Europe would be rendered uninhabitable because uh, inevitably some of those nuclear power, I mean, there's over a hundred nuclear power plants now just alone in the European Union. And then you add the nuclear plants in countries that aren't part of the EU. You can see, if you can imagine what it would have been if nuclear power came along in the 1930s. So now we go back to Ukraine, 15, 15 nuclear power plants, if there's an invasion, if there's a war, the ambassador spoke of this too. It's going to be a, a catastrophic event in terms of the consequences because of all these nuclear power plants. Bruce Gagnon has a blog, which I always read. And this is the one, it's actually from this morning. 15 nuclear reactors in Ukraine is the heading. War, very bad idea. And it's not only a very bad idea, it's a very bad, horribly bad event in human history because we have all these, these nuclear plants in this country. And I think they would inevitably get involved in a shooting war in the Ukraine. The disaster would be unthinkable. The radioactive disaster would be unthinkable. 
certainly it wouldn't take an atom bomb. We wouldn't have the fireball. But in terms of radiation releases, conventional weapons aimed at spent fuel pools or possibly containment vessels, but even just the spent fuel pools, you could have, we could have an enormous release of radiation. The question being, how likely is it that Russia has planned for this eventuality or this possibility by having teams of mobilized, trained reactor operators and reactor crisis management teams to take over any power plants that they might, quote unquote, liberate? Nuclear power plants have containments, but they don't contain very much. Indeed, here's a piece I wrote 2016, six years ago. Nuclear power plants, this is the headline, it was on Counterpunch. If people would like to read it, it's as relevant now as it was then. Nuclear power plants, the headline, are pre-deployed weapons of mass destruction. And I note in this piece about how this is the 9-11 commission that we had, writes about how those hijackers originally considered an attack by hijacked planes on quote, unidentified nuclear power plants. Indian Point nuclear power plants, thankfully not operating any longer, but 26 miles from New York City was conceived to be the nuclear power plants the 9-11 hijackers were thinking of hitting. An excellent, excellent, really an authority on nuclear power plants and the consequences of them being struck is Dr. Bennett Ramberg. He wrote a book. It's a landmark book. People should look at it because, again, this whole thing, nukes and war and the combination. I mean, the nuclear industry doesn't want to talk about this at all. He wrote a book, 1980, Nuclear Power Plants as Weapons for the Enemy, an Unrecognized Military Peril. He writes in the book, the multiplication of nuclear power plants has been given little public consideration in terms of their vulnerability in times of war. And that's what we have with the Ukraine, a country crowded with nuclear power plants. It's a product of war, it would be accidentally in a kind of, uh, if there's war, there's gonna be a big war in the Ukraine, probably the biggest war in Europe since World War II. And those 15 nuclear power plants in Ukraine are going to be one way or the other involved in the conflict. Let's look at it from the Russian perspective for a moment. Russia is, of course, the neighbor of Ukraine, half the country, basically. I think the majority of the population is Russian ethnic. It would not be in Russia's interest in any way to take out a nuclear power plant. Number one, because it would the radiation would fall into Russia as well. And number two, they'd be killing their own brothers and sisters by exposing the Ukrainian-Russian ethnics to the fallout. So I just don't see, I think this is just one more reason why Russia is trying to avoid this whole thing. But I think I'd like to go in for a moment to what I believe is driving all of this insanity today because mostly we're just talking about this immediate situation, but I want to talk about what's really behind it, and it's climate change. As you look at the Arctic Sea, which country has the largest border with the Arctic? 
And the answer, of course, is Russia, massive border. The Rand Corporation in California that was famous for publishing the uh, Vietnam era Pentagon Papers that was smuggled, copied and smuggled to the media, to the public by Daniel Ellsberg during the Vietnam War. The Rand Corporation recently has published a study called Unbalancing Russia. And they basically call for the breakup of Russia into smaller countries because the fossil fuel extraction corporations want to get their hands on that Arctic Sea. They don't want Russia to have access to all of that. And so the only way to do it is similar to what the US and NATO did to Yugoslavia during the Clinton administration. They broke it up, they balkanized it. And so that's the plan for Russia. And so what the Rand Corporation says is essentially that we have to create chaos along the borders of Russia. And by expanding NATO and uh, creating situations of a failed state in Ukraine, what they're doing is forcing Russia to spend a lot more money, a massive amount of money, protecting their borders, preparing against any kind of attack that would be ultimately directed by US and NATO. And so this is what the Rand Corporation prescribes bleed Russia so that it begins to have increasing internal problems. The population is not being cared for at the level they need. They begin to agitate and it becomes easier to destabilize Russia and do regime change, get rid of Putin and begin to balkanize the country, break it up so that the oil corporations can drill baby drill. Of course, Russia understands this is what's going on. And so we see this conflict going back and forth, but nobody really talks about what the real reasons for this conflict is. So anyway, I think this is really important. I urge people to go to my blog, which is called Organizing Notes, N-O-T-E-S, and just uh, search my name and Organizing Notes. You should find it. And I daily report on all these kind of things that are happening today. And of course, we will link to it on the website. Carl? And I would want to stress, I'm not saying that the Russians would hit the reactors in the Ukraine on purpose, because indeed it it would be suicidal for, I mean, Russia is right there. The fallout cloud would affect Russia, but it would be a part of the impacts of war, the kind of war I think that possibly could occur, A, a secondary impact being in a war zone, having 15 nuclear power plants in a relatively small country where there would be uh, hundreds of thousands of troops, both sides engaged with each other in all kinds of violence and bombing. And and again, with these nuclear plants in, in the middle of it all, it's no place for a war. Not that there's any good place for a war, but not with all, with all these nuclear power plants. Today, I got an email from a friend of mine in Russia, Dr. Vladimir Kozin. He's a member of the Russian Academy of Military Sciences. He's come to two of our Global Network annual meetings. We hold them in different countries where there are space issues. He's become a very good friend. If, If you don't mind, I'd like to take a minute and 
tell you what he's told me. He is concerned. He thinks there very well might be a war that will be initiated by Ukraine under pressure from the United States and NATO. He says the following. There are now 150,000 Ukrainian troops near the Donbass. Some days ago, it was 120,000. The Donbass has only 35,000 troops that cannot attack Ukraine. The general staff of the Ukrainian armed forces has finalized the master plan to attack Donbass. The USA has delivered 250 tons of military equipment and ammunition to the Ukrainian government. 45 more US transport aircraft are to arrive with more of this military equipment and ammunition. Civil hospitals in Ukraine have been converted into military ones. Any regular annual vacations for the Ukrainian GIs have been canceled. The bunker defeat munitions have arrived to the Ukrainian uh, government attacking forces. The Donbass self-defense forces do not have them. Basically, you know, both sides now of this contact line have created these kind of underground bunkers. It looks a lot like the World War I trench warfare kind of situation. And so uh, these bunker busting uh, munitions he's talking about, the U.S. and NATO have supplied them to the Ukrainian government. Several public protests against war versus the Donbass have recently been staged near the Ukrainian parliament. Because remember, half the country is Russian ethnic. They don't want war. The public doesn't want war. The current president, Zelensky, was elected because he was opposing any war. That's why he won the election. But as soon as he got in there, the US and NATO turned him around and he's their agent. And finally, he says that uh, Kiev, the capital, the government of Ukraine, continues to violate a ceasefire that was negotiated several years back. It's called the Minsk Agreements, where Ukraine signed an agreement with the Donbass. And the agreement says that you will allow for a federated Ukraine. Again, not Russia taking over the, the, the uh, Donbass region, Lugansk and Donetsk, but Ukraine government would agree to have a federated Ukraine where the local people there would be allowed to decide what language they want to speak. They'd get to elect their own local politicians rather than have them appointed by the current super right-wing government in Kiev, give them some local autonomy. That's all they've ever asked for. He says the Kiev government continues to violate the ceasefire. There have been 173 ceasefire violations recently, and uh, it's uh, getting worse by the day. So uh, Vladimir Kozin is not as optimistic, but I will say this, that just in the past week, there seems to be some of the NATO members that are getting cold feet. Croatia, the president of Croatia, has said we will not send any of our soldiers into a NATO war. They're a NATO member, Croatia is. Romania apparently has said the same thing. France, also a NATO member, is working behind the scenes trying to get the United States and NATO to back off. And Germany is also doing the same thing, we're told. And they didn't allow the United Kingdom to fly a weapon shipment. UK has been flying a lot of weapons to the Ukrainian government. And Germany said, you can't fly over our territory. 
So there is some consciousness growing in Europe that, hey, this wouldn't be good for us, especially with 15 nuclear reactors that could potentially, as Carl said, even if they weren't intentionally blown up, they could become, they could be hit during a, during a war. They could certainly be compromised in some way if the fighting takes place around them, if somebody goes off target, if they're dropping a bomb or if they're launching munitions at it. In all of this action that is going on behind the scenes, the diplomacy, the pressure, whatever's going on, what, if any, focus has there been on the fact of these 15 reactors and anything that could be done to protect them or mitigate damages, or do we just have to sit with them butt naked out there and vulnerable to anything that might happen in the course of a war? My opinion, Carl might be able to add more to this, but I didn't know anything about these 15 nuclear reactors until about three days ago. I put it on my blog today. I shared it widely on my email and on Facebook, uh, shared the article that I posted on my blog I'm trying to alert people to it, but I don't, I've heard no discussion prior to the last couple of days. The piece that I read before, uh, Ukraine invasion could go nuclear, 15 reactors would be in a war zone, and this is in aerospace and defense, which is, it was the trade journal. It goes back to, well, not too far, uh, December 28th. So it goes back to the end of the last year, but I mean, here it's spelled out. The threat is real. Ukraine is heavily dependent upon nuclear power. Even a desultory Russian incursion into eastern Ukraine is likely to expose reactors in the uncertainty of a ground combat environment. The world has little experience with reactors in a war zone. As to your earlier question, the consequences, the impacts of, it wouldn't take much. A handheld, shoulder-mounted rocket launcher can pierce the containment of a nuclear power plant. Nuclear power plants, nuclear reactors contain a thousand times more the radioactivity than the, the bomb dropped on Hiroshima. Again, I would think it would be inevitable that they would be impacted. You can't safeguard them. They're in the middle of a war zone. That radiation, that radioactivity would come streaming out. If a reactor is hit while it's in actual operation, which is highly likely, these nuclear power plants are in operation. You can have in the Ukraine a Chernobyl accident, a huge explosion. You can have easily a plume of radioactivity moving out of those nuclear power plants. The fallout has to be gauged in terms of winds, in terms of rain, and so forth. But again, th th this is a nuclear hotspot, and war is quite possible. And let me just, just, just add here that, oh, for 20 years at the United Nations, I was on a commission for disarmament education, conflict resolution, and peace. Our focus, our mission, was to look for ways to avoid war, particularly nuclear war. In this situation, I'm kind of, maybe I shouldn't be surprised that the United States has taken a very, very hard line position beyond what Bruce is talking about. What Russia is very concerned about is the placement of missiles and other weaponry, other armaments on their borders. I mean, it's been compared with what would the United States do 
if suddenly there were missiles and weaponry along the border with Mexico, along the border with, with Canada. This is too close to comfort. But from my reading of the Ukrainian situation, the U.S. doesn't want to negotiate on what seems to me to be a, be a central issue. Diplomacy is necessary here. Avoiding war is necessary here. With this commission that I was on for, for many years, we learned about countries, take Costa Rica, which disbanded its military in 1948, although people down in the Central American region said, you, you can't do that in this tough neighborhood. We learned about successful disarmament. We had programs where we put warring parties, so to speak, having retreats, getting to know each other, uh, indeed, putting together Israelis and Palestinians for two weeks to get to know each other, not to demonize each other any longer, but person to person. And it's amazing what that can do. There's all kind of conflict resolution measures and methods. I mean, it's a whole science these days. In, in my judgment, we can have peace, but you've got to work on it. And you have to have a will to have peace. And, and I'm afraid there are forces in this world which relish warfare, and there's an alternative, and the alternative is peace. Let me comment further on one thing Carl was just saying. He was talking about U.S. missiles nearby Russia. In fact, they're called Aegis Ashore Platforms. The Aegis, Navy Aegis destroyer that is made here in Bath, Maine, where I live, has had the best testing of its uh, so-called missile defense system. Missile defense basically is the shield to be used after the U.S. launches a first strike attack. The way it works, U.S. attacks, and then Russia or China tries to fire a retaliatory strike of their remaining capability. And it is then that these so-called missile defense systems are used to pick off that retaliatory strike, giving the U.S. a quote-unquote successful first strike. This is something that at the Space Command, they war game annually on computers against Russia and China. So anyway, this Aegis Navy platform has had the best testing results of any other so-called missile defense system. And so they've created it. They've now taken the technology off the ship and putting it on the land, and they put it in Romania and Poland. So in Romania and Poland now, so near the Russian border, the U.S. has this capability to be able to deliver a first strike attack and then have the shield pick off any Russian retaliatory strike. And when you say first strike, are you talking about a nuclear first strike? Yeah, I am. It's at these platforms, they not only can fire the interceptors for the shield, but they also can fire the Tomahawk nuclear capable cruise missile, which flies below radar detection. And this is what Russia talks about all the time is you've put these offensive Tomahawk cruise missiles, nuclear capable, very near our border. They would have the capability of taking out Russia's nuclear underground systems or command control centers, all those kind of military assets, if you will. And basically it's a Cuban missile crisis in reverse. But again, unlike the Cuban missile crisis, the American media doesn't ever talk anything about it. You never hear anything in the American media, never see anything in the papers about the Russian perspective on these 
NATO, U.S. NATO military deployments encircling them. This is what's driving them crazy in Russia, just as it would, as Carl said a minute ago, if we were putting, I mean, if they were putting bases in Mexico or Canada. So this is the unfairness. Yeah, the unfairness of the U.S. policy, the unfairness of U.S. media, uh, Western media, and not telling this story to the public. So they only get one side, and it's Russia demonization. That's all they hear. Talking about nuclear weaponry, so importantly, uh, at the United Nations, this goes back to uh, 2017, the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons was adopted. It was supposed to enter into force like last year. We have the majority of nations on this planet supporting it. The U.S. is not a signatory to the, uh, it's also called the Nuclear Weapons Ban Treaty. What we've been doing is uh, instead of trying to take the nuclear genie and put it back in the bottle, like was done after World War I, when the horrific consequences of the use of chemical warfare was so in the 1920s there was a series of treaties to prohibit to ban chemical weapons and it's not been perfect but it's pretty much held this nuclear weapons ban treaty would do the same kind of thing but put the nuclear genie back in the bottle but what we've done in the united states in fact begins under obama is to embark on a one trillion dollar modernization of our nuclear arsenal to make make even more powerful nuclear weaponry. This has continued. I mean, Trump said, uh, we have nuclear weapons, why don't, why don't we use them? And this drive to move towards uh, nuclear conflict, and suicidal, unwinnable. The Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists in 2020 put the doomsday clock and the doomsday clock signifies, this is what the nuclear scientists are saying, nuclear annihilation, nuclear annihilation. The doomsday clock was set up in 1947 by the bulletin to move it in 2020, 100 seconds to midnight to nuclear annihilation. The closest it's been, the closest it's been since uh, 1947. Last year, it was kept at 100 seconds to midnight. This year, just a couple of weeks ago, again kept 100 seconds to midnight. I mean, Ukraine or a conflict with China over Taiwan, as long as there's this thinking that nuclear war is acceptable, nuclear war is somehow winnable, our children and their children and their children, what they face is so threatening. What we have to do here, I think, is to our country and countries all through the world fully adopt the Nuclear Weapons Ban Treaty and abolish, abolish nuclear weapons. And then secondarily, abolish, eliminate, end nuclear power. Because in fact, nuclear power provides the materiel, the, the plutonium for nuclear weapons. The UN has various zones around the world, nuclear-free zones no nuclear weapons. I feel that the entire planet must be a nuclear-free zone. No nuclear weapons, no nuclear power. And back to the Ukraine, it's a case study of the folly in the real world of using nuclear power. 
Bruce, do you have a brief closer that you want to put on this? Well, yeah, let me say this. Uh, I'm looking at an article now that just came up today talking about how Biden and Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, are fighting with each other. And they're supposed to be allies in this. Remember that? Oh, let me read to you. The White House and its Democratic allies have just about had it with President Zelensky. According to three sources in the administration and on the Hill, the Ukrainian president is by turns annoying, infuriating, and downright counterproductive. Zelensky says the White House is making the Russian invasion as burning as possible. In my opinion, he says this is a mistake. So Zelensky is accusing Biden of hyping this war. Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, has said Russia is not going to invade, okay? So he's accusing the United States of hyping it for whatever reasons. And Biden is becoming frustrated that he's saying that, you know, he's sort of blowing the cover. So this whole thing is a mess in a million ways. And the last thing we in the United States should be supporting is a war in any way against Russia. It's total insanity. I want to thank both of you for certainly an unexpected set of turns that this conversation took and for the insight and the different perspective, because that's what we like to provide here. For now, Carl Grossman, Bruce Gagnon, thank you so much for taking the time to be my guest this week on Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you very much for having me on. That was award-winning environmental investigative journalist Carl Grossman and Bruce Gagnon, co-founder and coordinator of the Global Network Against Weapons and Nuclear Power in Space. Lots of links for this week's episode. To the book that Carl referenced, Nuclear Power Plants as Weapons for the Enemy, an Unrecognized Military Peril, Studies in International and Strategic Affairs, by Bennett Ramberg, We'll have a link to Carl's 2016 article in Counterpunch, Nuclear Power Plants, Pre-Deployed WMDs, and to Bruce's blog, Organizing Notes, which is on the Global Network's webpage, spaceforpeace.org. And that's the number four, spaceforpeace.org. And we'll link to an article by Linda Pence-Gunter of Beyond Nuclear on Ukraine, Nuclear War Without Bombs, All of these will be up on our website, NuclearHotSeat.com, under this episode, number 554. The award-winning documentary film Atomic Cover-Up by director Greg Mitchell is available for a free viewing through February 15th as part of the Barrymore Film Center Festival in Fort Lee, New Jersey. The widely acclaimed film explores how the U.S. suppressed the most important footage shot in Hiroshima and Nagasaki for decades. We will have a link to it up on the website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 554. And Atomic Cover-Up will also be one of the films at the 11th International Uranium Film Festival of Rio de Janeiro. That festival is scheduled for May 19 to 29, 2022, and I have been honored to be asked to be one of the judges for this year's festival. It's a 10-day in-gathering of filmmakers, nuclear experts, activists, journalists, and film enthusiasts from all over the world. 
they have invited me to come down for this, of course, and I would love to, but that would involve a fundraising effort through Kickstarter, and I'm not familiar with the platform. So if there's somebody out there who would like to help me get a Kickstarter up to see if I can get to Riel and claim all of those amazing interviews, such as I did at the International Uranium Film Festival when it was held in Window Rock, New Mexico, and also in Quebec many years ago. This would be a chance to do so. If you're interested in helping, send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com and I'll get right back to you. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, February 1st, 2022. Material for this week's show has been researched and compiled from nuclear-news.net, deunrenard.wordpress.com, beyondnuclear.org, nears.org, the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, or ICANW.org, NPR.org, uraniumfilmfestival.org, nuclearactive.org, provincetownindependent.org, TheVerge.com, PowerMag.com, Asahi.com, CRILAN.FR, MDPI.com, Dr. Helen Caldicott, IFLScience.com, and the ever-captured and compromised by the industry they're supposed to be regulating, Nuclear Regulatory Commission. If you'd like to make certain you don't miss a single episode of Nuclear Hot Seat, you can get it delivered via email every week as soon as as it posts. Just sign up. Go to NuclearHotSeat.com, look for the yellow box, and sign up for a weekly email link to the latest show with a brief summary of some of the information that's inside. Now, if you've got a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at NuclearHotSeat.com. And if you appreciate weekly verifiable news updates about nuclear issues around the world, take a moment to go to NuclearHotSeat.com and look for that big red button. Click on it, follow the prompts, and know that anything you can do will help, and we will really appreciate your support. This episode of Nuclear Hot Seat is copyright 2022, Libby Halevi and Hardestry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed as long as proper attribution is provided. This is Libby Halevi of Hardestry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that as Dr. Helen Caldicott, the mother of us all, writes from Australia, had there been atomic reactors in Europe during World War II, the continent would have been uninhabitable thereafter. Something to think about the next time your Uncle Doofus goes off on how nukes are the so-called solution to climate change. So there you go. You have just had your nuclear wake-up call. So now don't go back to sleep, because we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat, it's the bomb.